This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Like, I think clothes are optional at the popcorn stand. I don't know. It's Italy. Wolfman's got nards. I'm not even a scientist, but I know that's bullshit. I will Horace you right now. Hey, Casey. Hey, Bill. What do you think of the movie Monster Squad? Oh, I love it, man. I just watched it uh, the other week on... The plane coming home from one of my jobs. Really good. First time you saw it? Yeah. What'd you like about it? I like, well, I'm a big fan of the old, uh, the, the old monsters, you know, the old uh, uh, universal monsters. So for you, it was seeing them back again, kind of like in an adventure? Yeah. Yeah, and then they added a new one. I guess maybe they couldn't get the rights to the creature from the Black Lagoon. So they kind of invented their own Gilman. Right. Gilman is the creature of the Black Lagoon, right? So it's got Frankenstein in it. It's got uh, Dracula in it. It's got the mummy in it, right? Those are, were there any other universal monsters? Yeah, there was, there was Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, I think was part of it. Oh yeah, that's right. Remember they were going to make that whole dark universe? No, I don't. I don't remember that. Tom Cruise just came out in a mummy movie a few years ago. Do you remember that? Sort of. So he was going to kick off a whole new relaunching, like a extended universe, like how Marvel does it with all of their heroes popping in and out of each other's movies and having their own standalone movies. They were going to relaunch the Universal Monsters in that way, except the Tom Cruise mummy movie was kind of shit upon and disliked and just killed the whole thing. Like they literally have a photo of everybody together, probably composite and, you know, Photoshop together. But Johnny Depp was supposed to be part of this world, Angelina Jolie, and it just all died because of one movie. So I feel bad for those awesome universal monsters because they are pretty badass. They are cool. And I grew up on them. And then, yeah, they just kind of went away. So this movie is a, is an eighties movie, right? It's got, it's a little bit lighthearted, but it's still, you know, a little bit, whoa, this is intense shit in a PG-13 movie. It's a movie that it seems that everybody loves. Nobody ever says they hate it or they say, I haven't heard of it. Yeah. I hadn't actually heard of it until I think earlier this year. Yeah, it was off my radar a little. And we have a guest today who happened to be a lead character in this movie. Who'd we talk to? Andre Gower. This was a great interview. Yeah, it was very good. And Andre, he's got a lot to say. He's got a lot of opinions, a lot of thoughts, and a lot of love for this movie. I mean, how long was this interview? I'm not sure after you edited it down, how much? <laughs> edited down, it's, a, it's about an hour and a half. Yeah, so this is a fun one. We definitely talked to Andre a lot longer than that. Yeah, this was definitely a lot less of an interview and a little bit more of a conversation. I, I remember we went down the rails on like uh, – I remember we went down the uh, road for like uh, talking about Star Wars. I'm not even sure how that came up, but we talk about a little bit of everything. Yeah, we talked Star Wars, Predator, which tied into last week's episode with Bill Duke. 
We were talking about uh, that. <clears throat> yeah, this was a really great interview. Andre has a lot to say, and uh, it's all—it's already been released to the world uh, that there is a date for his documentary, a release date. As of the airing of this episode, that date has already been released, and I, Bill and I know that release date, but we're just going to still act like uh, we don't, and... Uh, You'll find out during the interview if you haven't heard already when this uh, Wolfman's Got Nards documentary is coming out. And Andre uh, has put a lot of uh, his life into this documentary, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, me too. I mean, he was talking about how it's not just like, hey, this is what we did when we made the movie, which is fine with me. I love that shit. I could watch that shit all day. But, uh, you know, he, he really sold it. Um, and you'll hear this in the interview when you listen. He really sold it to something uh, a little bit bigger than that, a little bit more about the community, a little bit more about the, the fans and how passionate they are and, you know, some of the – just some of the great things that you get from being in love with some of this 80s culture. So very excited to see it. Yeah, yeah, this was a good one. And uh, we'll jump right into the interview as soon as I do my little plugs. Here they come. Yes. All right. So uh, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Deluxe Edition Pod. That's one E. And then uh, we're at Deluxe Edition dot show with two E's. Facebook, Deluxe Edition, yet another pop culture podcast. Uh, Three E's in that one, everybody. Three E's. <laughs> Subscribe to us on uh, YouTube if you're watching. Hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you're listening anywhere, make sure you subscribe and uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you can. And we're on the No Phony Podcast Network. Check those guys out. There's a lot of great podcasts on there. And uh, anything else, Bill? Did I miss anything? No, I think that's it. This is a good interview. Let's jump right into it. All right, buddy. No, hey, I Andre. Should be here. How's that? Yes, sir. You're here for sure. Thanks All for right. joining us today. And where are you guys located? We're right outside of Philadelphia. Ever heard of Reading, PA? Sure. Yeah. I mean, who That's doesn't play Monopoly? Come on. <laughs> Reading Railroad, yeah. yeah. Once that Reading Railroad closed, Reading died. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. No, uh, so you're both there. That's cool. Because um, yeah. I'm looking, I always try to, I look at everybody's backdrop. Uh, uh, Casey, is that your actual backdrop, or is that like yeah. a Zoom backdrop? Now, now, Bill and I were just talking about the using the Zoom backdrops earlier, and he's like, "Why would you use a Zoom backdrop?" He's like, "Your backdrop's great." Yeah, it's very cinematic and very like like I don't know. There's gonna be like a, a colonial. Yeah, it's in front of my uh, fireplace here. <laughs> yeah, no, I got that's awesome. With Bill, I just want to like you know, you need to go back there and just start dropping a beat and like cranking out on the keyboard. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I got guitars. Cool. So I, I run a marketing company, so it's like everybody's allowed to see this side of my life. They're not allowed to see that side of my life. <laughs> got it. Got it. All fair. All fair. So Andre, we're kind of the same age. I remember when um, when I was a kid. I remember always being watch, always watching those monster movies like on TV. For me, you could always watch the old black and white Universal monsters. The Freddies and the Jasons were real big. And I remember like Beastmaster was on TV like every single day. And I mean, I was such a massive fan of this monster stuff. Were you as well when you were young? Was it still on, was it on your radar like it was on mine? You know, great. You said like, you know, we're the same. You're, you're 20, you're 28. That's awesome. 27. Um, we're the same. <laughs> you're ahead of me. Oh, I wish, right? My back wouldn't hurt. My foot wouldn't hurt. 
No, I think at the time, I think growing up uh, as a as a preteen and a teenager in the 80s was, was about as unique as it gets. I could probably only think of another singular decade that was as transformative, you know, in pop culture or world affairs, maybe the 50s. Because we had, it's funny, when you're in the 80s, you only really had like 30 years of TV and movies, maybe 40 years if you really got that programming. Uh, and, you know, obviously I know movies started way before that, but we had three channels. <laughs> you know, it's like you didn't see three channels in a local, so you didn't have a lot of uh, programming. But on Saturdays, you know, on the either local, you know, syndicated channel or, you know, late night on a network, they run old movies, right? So we grew up watching those. You know, you're exposed to them, you know them. When you're really young, you don't know what's going on. You're just watching something that's like, ooh, there's Wolfman or there's a mummy. Creature from the Black Lagoon was always my favorite same guy. Yeah. He, he's my he's my guy. All the other monsters are great. They're all, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, all, you know, from literature. Creature was something invented by the studio to kind of come up. It's, you know, it's a little post-World War II, post-atomic age, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I think it was an answer to, you know, like it's uh, our Godzilla-ish, you know, type of thing. It's like, where did this guy come from? But you still don't really... When you're super young, you just watch them and then you and, and, and they go by and you may see them again. I saw, you know, most of them, but it wasn't really a huge impact. You're just aware of them. I was a bigger, on Saturday mornings, I was, I was a bigger Kung Fu theater kid. Like, oh, really? I mean, just watched Kung Fu theater all day. Because you wake up, you have cartoons, maybe you have soccer game or baseball practice or something. You come home and you have Kung Fu theater in the afternoon. And then they play maybe an old Western or maybe an old classic movie. And I, I started watching old movies at, at a very young age. I was also in the industry at a very young age. So it was something that's like, you're kind of aware of this is a movie and you know how they're made, but you're watching these cool stories, you know, and you're watching old, you know, noirs or old Westerns. And, and you know, when your parents like certain type of movies, you know, you get to watch stuff and it, you know, it's kind of neat. You know, my parents grew up, you know, Western fans and, you know, certain actors, fans, and, you know, and then I got to go to the movies with my dad a lot and go to the drive-in, which was cool. So you're exposed to a lot of stuff more when you have people that are supportive of it or into it. But I was also in film and TV. at the, I, mean, I started when I was five. So you're kind of already inside of it. But then you're on Saturday morning, you're just a dorky kid on a Saturday afternoon watching Kung Fu Theater or an old, you know, Frankenstein movie or, you know, Revenge of the Revenge of the Werewolf, you know, type stuff, which is uh, why we have everything we have today. That's so interesting to me because I, I look back at some of the stuff that I remember loving so much and half the stuff in the 80s, in my opinion, because I didn't have the CGI, right? We had just the practical effects. We had to use our imagination to fill in a ton of the blanks. Sure. Um, so to me, I think a lot of the monster movies that we grew up with were maybe a little bit more scary because our, our minds were sort of conjuring a lot of the fright. Right. And I think why I think, you know, when you mentioned the 80s being transformative, you know, we got exposed to the old stuff because they were already archived and we could see them. But the new stuff that was coming out, you know, if someone had a, a beta player or a VHS player or some weird cable thing like on TV. You could see old 70s horror movies like late at night at your buddy's house. I was never cool enough to have that stuff, but 70s horror was different and like kind of slasher movies, you know, kind of when it really starts gritty and raw. But 80s, it started getting into a little psychological. You had Jason and then Fred. I think Freddy was probably the scariest villain monster just because he wasn't real. He was in your mind. Right. But then like your mind manifested that you're like, 
what? <laughs> like, no, I couldn't run away from a guy wearing a mask. Like, I'm fast. I can run away from him. Like, Fred, you can't get away from him because he's just in your mind. <laughs> so that was terrifying. And then, you know, the great slasher movies and all that, those are fun. You know, when you're really young, you get to watch them, you know, when you're not supposed to at a, you know, your sleepover birthday party with your classmates or something. Uh, but I, you know, that transition of the, the effects and, you know, they've been doing makeup effects for 30, 40, 50 years, but now they were really kind of changing and trying to get gross and, and trying to be more active and, and, and blood spurts and splatters and heads exploding. And when you watch like a head exploding for the first, like, Whoa, that's amazing. And you watch it today and go, that is terrible <laughs> because we're so good at it now. And it looks super realistic, which I don't know why we celebrate like someone's you know head getting blown off. Like that was awesome. You're like, wait, but um, I think it was such a unique time and we got exposed as kids to the old original stuff and then the stuff, the current stuff. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't think other many generations, I think it was very transformative even in cinema or genre or filmmaking in general, because we were just coming as a little bit of digital effects, a little bit of special effects, you know, lighting, you know, plates, you know, different stuff that they had been perfecting for a little bit. And we finally got to see that. Yeah. I mean, as kids, like we we watched or read Fangoria, like we were into the horror stuff. We liked right. the monsters, so it makes total sense to me that they would make Monster Squad. They make a, a horror movie that actually has kids as the lead, so the kids who are liking this stuff can identify with the people in the movie. Is that the idea behind the the origin of it? You know, I, th- I think it was, and in. Here comes the first shameless plug, but in, in the documentary, you know, we go into that of where kind of the origin idea of what the Monster Squad is from Fred Decker's brain. And it was really, you know, to to paraphrase half quote Fred, he grew up watching all of those classic TV shows and monster movies on television as a kid. And he was a little bit older. You know, Fred was just about, you know, 10 or 12 years older, you know, than Ryan and I, when we're making, <laughs> he's very young, uh, but still that's 10 years of more, you know, earlier exposure of, you know, you know, seventies watching old forties, fifties monster movies, but really the origin of monster squad, which I love this story is, you know, Fred Decker said, what would happen if the little rascals fought the universal monsters? Interesting. Okay. So it wasn't like, Hey, Goonies had just come out. We got to follow the Goonies formula. Fred and Shane broke this script a year or two before the Goonies. You even heard about the Goonies. Uh, they started writing, I think, Monster Squad in like 85 when they were in college at UCLA. And, uh, you know, it was, you know, Fred and Shane were buddies uh, in college. Um, Shane came to L.A. to be an actor. And he's actually, he's a great actor, by the way. And ended up being a gigantic screenwriter instead. Uh, and then acted on the side. But, um, yeah, he's like, what are you doing? And Fred's like, well, I'm working on this idea. And it's like, oh. Can I try? So they worked, they ended up writing the story together and uh, Shane banged out a first draft of, of what's the mon- what became the Monster Squad. And it was, you know, this gigantic, grandiose kind of thing. And uh, it ended up being the Monster Squad, which was, yeah, you know, kids fighting the monsters. Had we seen kids that, you know, besides the Goonies, which, I mean, Goonies is great. Were they really fighting monsters? I mean, they were they were looking for a pirate ship. They were running away from the pizza brothers. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's okay. Uh, you know, we're out there like, Oh, these are the, like, Monster Squad's a little real. It's a little dark. It's, it's a little sinister. Uh, it comes off as campy a little bit when some people look at the marketing or the, or the idea of it. But I think that it was sort of the, sort of the problem why a lot of people didn't go to it as 10 or 11, 12 year olds. Cause it was a little too much. 
And um, it, it, it was real and authentic and scary and, and dangerous. Um, you know, I've had a lot of fans and, and good that are friends now. And it's like, this was, you know, the first time that we saw something dangerous with kids. And like, I felt like I could do that. And I wanted to be there. It wasn't campy or schlocked over or, or cartoonish. And it was like, really, they were like, this is really, yeah, this is my jam. And that's why a lot of kids connected with it. Not a lot of kids saw it in the movie theater when it came out. That's why it totally bombed. But, uh, you know, they found it on HBO a year later and at their local video store. And then they just attached to it and connected to it and really, really became a part of their lives. Yeah, sure did. Were you part of the production from the beginning? Because you were a working actor. Were you already doing TV? I mean, you were on every big 80s show. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, like I said, I started when I was five, you know, doing a bunch of commercials and print work and, and television and movies of the week and features. And I had done a, a lot of television leading up to Monster Squad. And I had gone from show to show to show and then get cast in this, this big studio movie. Uh, it was just a regular audition process. A lot of fans know, some fans don't know. I never auditioned for the role of Sean. I actually originally screen test for the role of Rudy because, you know, leading up to you know, August or whenever we auditioned for that. Uh, my body of work had been the cool kid with the, the, the awesome hair and way too much hair product and, uh, you know, a cool leather jacket or something. And so it's like it automatically slides into that role. And, you know, you get a call like two or three weeks after your third callback and screen test where they, hey, you got cast in that movie that you read for. You're like, hey, that's awesome. And they're like, well, you didn't get the role that you read for. And that's usually terrible news because you usually get a lesser role. They're like, we liked you, but we want to put you in something else. And very rarely does it go the other way. And uh, they're like, no, you got the lead. I was like, no, I wanted to play the cool kid. <laughs> and because who doesn't, who didn't want to be Rudy? And, uh, you know, more kills, gets the girl, has the jacket, you know, smokes, drinks a beer. You know, he's, he's awesome. Uh, I know exactly why I didn't get cast as Rudy, because Ryan Lambert went in there and rocked that screen test, and there was no other Rudy. And uh, they were like, well, you know, we kind of like this Andre dork. Let's put, let's cut his hair off and, <laughs> and put him in this dorky t-shirt that became iconic and uh, make him the insufferable know-it-all leader that's just bossing everybody around. <laughs> How well was the film marketed? And here's why I ask. Um, I mean, it's totally targeted to me as a kid. But where I lived, it, it kind of came into, into my purview much later. And I feel like a lot of people around me also were like, yeah, I didn't find that movie out till a few years later. So you're saying it wasn't a big hit when it came out. Was this a situation where maybe it's like we release it in a few theaters, we don't do a national launch? Or did I just miss it? Did me and my friends just somehow look the other way? It kind of depended on where you were at the time and if you happened to catch it. And you asked about the, I think that the marketing campaign had a lot to do with it. At the time, you know, August, mid-August, whatever, 87, it ran into a couple things that were very ripe for making it not survive in the box office in 87. One, there's a lot of movies in the summer of 87. We always thought this should have been a Halloween movie. It could have been a Halloween, but they, it was for kids, so they wanted it during the summer where they could go on a Wednesday night instead of, you know, on a, on a Saturday afternoon, which, which totally makes sense. But we had this marketing campaign that led up to the release, um, one of the, that was kind of contradictory in, in, in kind of the parallel paths that it was taking. A, a lot of the kind of advertisements and the, and the trailer was very dark and scary. And we also got a PG-13 rating, which pretty much killed it for the younger kind of 9, 10, 11, maybe 12-year-olds. 
And the marketing of it and what it looked like, the older kids that were cool, that were 14, 15, 16, they weren't going to go see a kid's movie because they were cool. They were going to go see The Lost Boys, which just released two weeks prior to Monsters Quest, which really took a lot of, you know, teenage box off office kind of stuff. But we weren't the same audience. You know, that's definitely an older teenage audience. But the cool middles wanted to go to that one. And I think it was too scary for the young kids because the parents were like, this is PG-13. I'm not taking my kid to this movie. Uh, and I definitely don't want to sit there myself because you have to when you're PG-13. So, uh, you know, I've got other stuff to do on a, on a, on a Wednesday afternoon. And it was too kid-like for the 13 or 14 or 15-year-olds. You know, they're going to go see Lost Boys. And what's interesting is I, I, I think they missed that with the marketing and the targeting of, one, the audience that should have gone to see it. And then, two, they had this other marketing campaign, which was really weird that uh, I think it's very innovative in a post-internet time because they had, like, these wanted posters. Like, they were in, like, Wild West wanted posters. And it was like just the mummy and the Dracula had these really corny kind of, you know, sayings that what they were wanting. And it was, and what was even worse is like on the poster for Dracula, it wasn't Duncan Regeer, who's one of the best Draculas of all time on camera. It was like this other like actor, like stand in my, like it looked, didn't look anything like Duncan. It looked terrible. And it really had, it was like a call to action type campaign. Like it was just wanted posters. It just said wanted. And it had, it's like, but it didn't tell you what it was. And of course, there's no like, you know, URL to go to or like QR code to scan or like, you know, there's like nowhere to go. Like what, why is this weird? Is that a Dracula? Like, what is this guy? So there's nowhere to go. And then they had the trailer with his dark and scary and their parents went to take it. And it just, I think all of that jumbling coupled with Lost Boys opening with cool kids. But then we didn't really get a lot of good reviews. Like a lot of the local newspaper and local news reviewers didn't like the movie. Uh, they thought it was campy, that it was childish, they thought it was dumb, they thought the performances were weak, uh, they thought the effects were late. Like, there's a lot of bad reviews, like in newspapers. And at that time, being no Rotten Tomatoes, being, you know, you know, Deadline or Entertainment Weekly or, you know, your internet blog, you know, with or podcast to talk about movies that people think are cool, uh, you read your newspaper. You know, when on Sunday morning, like, oh, this, they said this movie sucks, so we're not going to go see that. And that coupled with the fact that you know, I always make the joke that if the marketing team for the, like the studio really kind of understood, I, but I don't think they ever would have until after the fact anyway. So I'm not like, you know, re, you know, revising, you know, their jobs or anything. Cause it's, that's a hard thing to do. It, it's too much for the younger kids. It was, it was too kid-like for the older kids, but we, you have that right in the middle, like that 11, 12, 13 year old, you know, maybe not as, you know, kind of grown up 14 year old, maybe that has a younger brother or sister that they're going to take and they'll enjoy it too, which is a very good example of that, that we talk about with a very well-known person now. So we made like the first tween movie. Like it really was a tween movie because it was scary, authentic people die. There's a body count. I don't, I don't know the body count in Goonies. I, I know it's not ours. <laughs> you know, if you're a sheriff in Monster Squad, like you should just not go to work that day right and you know there's monsters and like there's monsters killing kids uh you know like dracula think you know he's blowing us up with a piece of dynamite i mean that's you know that we have a holocaust survivor we have uh our hero is the five-year-old girl which is like no one like who's doing that which is awesome and then you know these dorky kids that are the only ones that you know know what's going on with this you know historical famous monsters that are coming together for the first time so i always make the joke it's like did we make the first tween movie before anybody knew 
what a tween movie was. And I was like, boy, if they had just captured that, like we could have made like Monster Squad 11 Breaking Dawn or something. And it would have been like, you know, we, uh, we would have had a franchise of like Twilight, you know, epicness or something. But, uh, I, you know, I think it's unique that it, it went away and enough people saw it in the theater that they latched onto it, but it was gone like that. But the kids in the cul-de-sac were like, did you not go see that? I'm like, oh, and then it came out on HBO. And then they saw it in the local video store and it started to kind of network out and kids would tape it off of HBO and show it around the neighborhood or they would, you know, tape it off HBO or just keep renting it from the video store uh, until eventually the store just gave it to them. They're like, you rent this every day. Like it, you net, like just have it. Or they, they would steal it and the mom's credit card would get charged like the 6450 licensing fee or whatever it is. Right. Back in the day, because they just didn't care. And they were like, I'm, this is my, this is my thing. And those are the people that became the Monster Squad OG fans. And, you know, that were, you know, dormant and thought they were the only kids around for about 20 years. Yeah. And then they finally found each other in like 06. Yeah. Well, PG-13, I mean, that, that time that the movie came out, that's interesting. So the, the rating was higher than the age of, of probably your proper target market, as you say. And I remember when it came out, it was like Gremlins got it, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom got it. And it did seem a lot worse uh, when those movies came out. Because I went, Mom, I want to go see Indiana Jones. It's PG-13. You can't. And very strict on it, yeah. Right, because, you know, the, the, especially back then, uh, you know, parents would drop their kids off at the movie and, like, look like, you go, I've got, you know, shopping or, you know, get the tires rotated or something. And, uh, you know, doing adult stuff. <laughs> and we get to run around the movie theater and watch, you know, movies and then maybe sneak into the next one or buy, you know, a half price ticket for a, mat, a double feature. Yeah, they weren't able, you know, to kind of really do that with the rating. And what's interesting is we, you know, we learned years later that in the UK is a gigantic Monster Squad fan army. I mean, it is huge. You, it's huge in the UK. Scotland, Ireland, they love Monster Squad. And we've, I've, you know, we've been there a couple of times and it's awesome. And in the UK, they had a, they have, they don't have PG-13, they had 15. So you couldn't see it unless you were 15. You know, luckily on, you know, cable and HBO or Sky, you know, whatever they had back then. And then video, a lot of kids found it, but they were not able to go to the theater if they were not 15. So the UK was even more restrictive of Montreal, but that's one of our biggest and most fervent fan bases still today's in the UK. And we ran into... That rating, interesting, because we went to London because uh, there was a screening of Monster Squad, like a 30th anniversary year screening at the Prince Charles Cinema, which is just an awesome place to go. Uh, it's one of the key venues during uh, Arrow, Arrow Films Fright Fest, you know, big you know, genre film festival in London. And I love those guys that run that. I love Paul at the, at the Prince Charles Theater. I mean, it's, the, it's an awesome theater. And we took our crew, Ryan and I went to London, and we, I mean, just had two screenings and like, thousand people or something. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was huge. And there was this little girl Allegra, and her mom who took, I mean, either drove in and like took the train for like two hours and to, to come in to see this movie. Cause it's, she's 11 and uh, it's her favorite movie. And you know, this is 2016, 2017. And this girl's 11 and it's her favorite movie. She's like, I'm going to meet, I'm going to meet Rudy and I'm going to meet Sean and I'm going to see my favorite movie on the big screen. She's never seen it in the theater and it's on 35 and uh, she can't come into the theater because she's not 15. Because the 15 rating still held 30 years later. And, you know, the theater was like, hey, we got this, you know, it's like, can you come talk to this man? It's like, we can't let them in. I'm like, that's BS. Like, she's coming in. 
Like she can come in with me. Right. And they're like, no, like they'll pull our license, our business license. Wow. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was like, she's not 15. I was like, that's a rating from like 30 years ago. It's like, still, it's still a thing. I, I we felt so bad that her and her mom could not come in and see the movie that she was all jazzed up for like weeks to see. And uh, she couldn't see it. <laughs> Even with uh, parental supervision, she wasn't you allowed. Have to, you have to be 15. Doesn't, wow. like it, they, there's no like PG-13 you have to be with your parent or guardian. Yeah. It was just 15 or nothing. Wow. And uh, I was like, this is insane. So we, we walked her in after the movie and she was in, in the Q and a, and she got to hang out and, and we took pictures and she's in our documentary. She's, she's adorable. And uh, you know, she's in, she's in the documentary cause we got her right. I was like, you, you're totally in this documentary now because you weren't allowed to come in to see it. This is, this is what I'm talking about. How this movie didn't get a chance because the kids were still aren't allowed to go to see it. And uh, it was just an interesting story about the UK, the rating that, you know, all coming in with the marketing campaign, the wanted posters, uh, there's a couple tidbits in there that we, we showcase in the doc that are like, who thought of that? <laughs> and um, it, it, it's definitely a different era. And, but look, they found it and they, they traded around in their, in their, in the cul-de-sac in the neighborhood and, you know, it caught on and there was this kind of seething underground kind of monster squad fan base that no one really knew was there for about 19 or 20 years. And then it just exploded. The movie cover at the video store is what got me. You know, this looks scary, but there's kids in it. Right. Nothing else like this, you know, on in line here. So that's a that's a, it's a great point. A good example of why cover art is cover art. You know, it catches your eye. And like, whoa, what is this? And lot that original poster. That's a great poster. Yeah. I've signed a bazillion of them. You know, people <laughs> have it. They're you know originals or old ones. I love the foreign ones. There's some great Monster Squad foreign one sheets that are just insane. Like the Italian one. There's like. She's naked and like who is it? who is this? <laughs> and uh, I mean, don't get what me wrong, it's awesome, but I, it's the Italians. There's no rating. <laughs> um, like I think clothes are optional at the popcorn stand. I don't know. It's Italy. Um, that's why they're awesome. But what's interesting about you know a lot of people don't think about it because they just love that poster so much. And I mentioned before, like you know, we're this 1987 kids movie. We fight these monsters and there's explosions and blowing up and cursing. And our hero is the five year old girl. And the hero of the movie that literally saves the world is not on the movie poster. Oh, Phoebe's not on that one sheet. Wow. And uh, it was an interesting thing because that was a photo shoot actually that we went to like a, a parking garage and sat on the hood of a car in Santa Monica, like on a Saturday morning. And uh, Ashley Bank who played Phoebe had like a, a commercial, uh, something else, like something that conflicted and they couldn't get. And so she wasn't there for that photo shoot. But then I always thought, I was like, wait a minute this isn't a photograph. Like you took the photo as like the plate base and then you animated the photo. Like you drew it. Like <laughs> I was like, why didn't you just take a photo of her and put her in, in the poster? And so we've always debated, like Ashley's always debated, like we're like, why, why did that not happen? How would we not have the hero of the movie? In the? It's like not having Indiana Jones on the cover of Indiana Jones. Or it's like a Star Wars poster, like, you know, Luke's like not there. It's like there's there's another kid in this that actually wins the day, but he's not on the he's not on the poster. Don't worry about him. It's not important. Not important. yeah. So she, she always you know <laughs> we always gave her a little bit of shit for years, but they were like that's totally unfair. Like why are you not on the poster? Uh, she's on one poster. She's on the Australian poster, which is uh, doesn't look anything like uh, any of the other ones. No. <laughs> so she's like yes, an Australian one. I get to sign a poster that I'm actually on. Great. Only the Australian one though. <laughs>
Only the Australian one. I wouldn't mind having one of those wanted posters. If you get, if, does anybody know where any of those things are? Those, those are floating around. Um, a, a, a good friend of ours now of, of, of Monster Squad fandom, uh, uh, Andrew Norris, uh, we got in touch with Andrew and we actually shot some of the documentary at his house because he had some cool stuff that he had collected. Uh, he actually owns Duncan Regeer's uh, cape. Oh, wow. Uh, that he that he had acquired from Forrest Ackerman's estate, like during like a, a sale, uh, and he's a huge monster. I mean, he's a m- huge movie fan, but you know he's a big monster squad fan. He's this really cool dude, and we got to go to his house in Maryland and, and invade like his little private domain of his collectibles. And uh, he had one of the he had one of the the, the wanted posters, and uh, I think I think I, like we packed it up because we used it, for, and I think I still have it. I think I need to get it back to him if if yes. I, I think he remembers that I that I walked out of his house with it. I, if he wants, I got to get it back to Andrew. It's unfair, but uh, I think they're floating around. You can you can find them, but they're they're a little rare. I think where you see a lot of them is in like old EPKs because they can you know like like. <laughs> folders like pocketed folders like we had in, in junior high you yeah. know, with a bunch of press stuff and you know a lot of them are folded up and put in that and some are on just like little tiny cards in the zpks but it was a neat campaign but just not where i, I see what they were trying to do but it it, it, it didn't work it, it, it did not work <laughs> especially when you read especially when you read what they typed on the posters which will reveal in the time like you'll understand why <laughs> But so the movie had a slow sort of rolling start, but it did eventually build steam. You know, 80s Hollywood, how did they not make a sequel? They must have had enough people to, to want to see a sequel. No, it's all box office. I mean, back in the day, it's all box office. And that movie, not only definition of bombed at the box office, but was, was literally a cautionary tale of, you know, don't give a young director, you know, like, you know, you know, millions and millions of dollars to make a monster movie, be, you know, for kids because no one's going to go see it. And I was like, well, that had nothing really to do with the movie or the quality of the script or the characters or the concept. Uh, it didn't, if, and back in the day, like if your movie did not perform in the first three days of opening weekend, like you're, you were done. Like those first 72 hours, like, okay, you get another week. And then if that weekend doesn't work, they're like, you're done. Or it's like, if it does well, like, okay, maybe you get another week. Because it's very expensive to keep a movie in movie theaters and keep marketing it. If that money's not coming this way, they're not going to send it out to keep it out there. And when those numbers don't reach whatever the, you know, the what's it, an algorithm there, whatever the, you know, the actuaries with their slide rules and their pencils, you know, we're creating of what the success is based on budget and cost of P&A and prints and advertising and marketing this movie, uh, like we're pulling it. We cut our losses and go. And uh, that's why there's no sequel. I mean, we were signed off for, you know, contractually obligated for, you know, that's, those are boilerplate, right? But, you know, sequels and, and action figures and Saturday morning animated, you know, series and stuff like that, because if it blows up and gets huge, then you're already locked in. None of that happened because the movie bombed. I mean, it was a big budget, big thing, and everybody saw it as a giant failure. And that was kind of unfortunate. I mean, because that, that you know, that hits you as the person that's in it. Uh, you know, as a whole cast and let alone the people that made it or created or wrote it or directed it like, like Fred, uh, Shane, a great piece of, you know, fortunate timing, right. At the time, uh, while we were shooting monster squad, uh, he wrote this spec screenplay and sold it. And, you know, it was, that did pretty good. It was called lethal weapon, you know, so that worked out good for Shane, 
Fred Decker ended up doing Monster Squad. The movie doesn't do well. So that's strike two against a director. Even though Night of the Creeps was fun and enjoyable, it just had this giant, you know, that's it, a great, like, people love Creeps, right? That's a, it's a fun movie. And it's got Tom Atkins. So what's wrong with that movie? And Jason Lively. And then, you know, Fred, got, you know, gets called by a giant studio and says, hey, you know, we're doing our third installment of a giant box office hit. Uh, do you want to direct the third installment? And he's, what, 27 or 28 at the time. And what's he going to say? No. Like, of course you say yes to that. And it was RoboCop 3. So automatically, you know, you, you go to director jail. And it's very hard to get a callback or get any work for a long time for Fred, which is super unfortunate because he's a, he's a very knowledgeable, very creative, very astute guy that just wants to make stuff. And Shane ended up, you know, going on this other trajectory because right after Lethal Weapon, he wrote um, a spec screenplay that was the highest spec screenplay ever bought, The Last Boy Scout. And then he followed up with The Long Kiss Goodnight and he was set forever. But then he kind of went dormant for about a decade because uh, you just, you know, different stuff there. And then he came back with my favorite Shane Black movie, which was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Kiss, Kiss, Bang Bang, yeah. Fantastic. And literally resurrected two careers in Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Was he in Predator or did he write Predator as well? Because I know he also guested as a character in Predator. He's, uh, I think the story with Predator, you know, because the whole thing with the red chicken suit and Jean-Claude Van, Jean Van Damme being the Predator, you know, they shot like, two or three weeks or something of the predator with Jean-Claude Van Damme in this red, like the, like red chicken suit. Like they called it the red chicken. We actually just talked to Bill the other day. Yeah. He was telling us a story about that. Yeah. Right. So what I, if I'm, he knows a lot more about it than I do, but uh, they shot for a couple of weeks. It wasn't looking like it didn't do good. And ironically, there's a little bit of a tie in here. I, I think it was, Schwarzenegger said, look, uh, I just uh, I just worked with these guys on Terminator. They're pretty good at like effects and creature making. Why don't we give the Stan Winston guy a shot at creating an alien? And this was, you know, kind of right at the same time. And Shane, I think, got brought in to script doctor. And, but then he wrote himself into the movie or like they said, he goes, I want to be in the movie too. And they're like, yeah, well, we don't want you to write like script doctor, like you and like the thing. So you got to die first or something. So, like, uh, he, you know, so a lot of the quips and the jokes and the camaraderie, uh, when you realize that Shane had a little bit of, you know, keyboard effect on what ended up becoming Predator, you can see if you know Shane Black and Shane Black kind of writing and seeing like, you're like, that's a very Shane Black thing. Like the, the, the banter back and forth between people. Uh, especially as a unit or like one-on-one -on -one. like Shane Black writing for two person dialogue in a scene is probably the best out there. Like it's just, and you see that in everything that he does lethal weapon, even in monster squad, which is the first example of it between Stephen mocked and Stan Shaw, the two cop that's just Riggs and Murtaugh to me just reversed <laughs> in the, in the, in the look of each guy. It's the same, you know, the burnt out cop and funny guy. It's like, it's crazy. Uh, and they have this great little banter back and forth. But yeah, then they changed the movie and Stan Winston's crew ended up, you know, making what became probably one of the top iconic monsters, you know, as an alien, you know, that we all recognize. And if you look at the Predator build and you look at the Predator paint scheme and you get the backstory by the kid who made that, his name's Steve Wang, he also created and came up with a paint scheme for another well-known monster called Gilman and the Monster Squad. So, uh, you know, because all those Stan Winston guys worked on those two movies kind of, you know, at near the same time. 
And Steve, you know, all these guys were these young, you know, kind of aspiring effects guys. And they just, now they're the icons of the industry. Like they are the, they are the pinnacle of, you know, creature effects, you know, and they have been for the last 25 years. And they all started out in the mid eighties and 86, you know, 85, 86, 87, making movies like, uh, you know, uh, aliens and, and predator and, and, and monster squad. Wow. That's awesome. So, yeah. So Shane, Shane jumped in there, script doctor a little bit, got killed first, continues, you know, script doctors, they go. And I love Fred. I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. Um, there's only a couple things I have a problem with it, but uh, it's still fun. Uh, it kind of holds up. It's still pretty cool. And I love seeing Shane in it because he's so young. <laughs> it's so young and, and funny. And he's just the joke teller. And um, all the other Predator movies are pretty good. And then look, you know, full circle, Fred and Shane get to remake The Predator, which came out, you know, a year and a half ago or uh, almost two years ago now. And um, that's, that's a different story. I, I think uh, if you had just let Fred and Shane write a script and let Shane direct it and leave them alone, you would have had a, a pretty bitchin' Predator movie. Uh, it might have been a little cerebral as a as an alien invasion monster movie, uh, but I th- I think the studio just stepped all over that and, and killed it. Yeah, definitely didn't come out the way I was hoping it would. No, and yeah, I, you know I was uh, you know we talked to Fred you know during that time a little bit what they're doing and they I mean they shot that movie for a long time and and had to end up doing a bunch of reshoots and and, and problems and and I was like, what's the like? Why aren't we just making some of this like really just nitty grit like down in the dirt gritty awesome you know kind of alien movie that's this kind of reboot of this awesome franchise and uh, i loved the concept because i had known a little of the like ideas that they had when they were breaking the first draft a little bit uh which was really i was like uh, and it was they they didn't know if arnold was going to be in it or not if he was what route do we go if he wasn't what route do we go he ended up not being in it but there were some cool ideas there that they were, they were batting back and forth, but I love the idea that the, what people, what a lot of people I don't think caught in the new predator is that it's a, that's a, it's a mental health awareness movie. Everybody's on the spectrum, which I think is sort of everybody that, cause it's the whole group of misfit soldiers that all have psychological problems or mental issues. And everybody just thinks they're crazy, you know, kind of PTSD vets, but they all have their own, you know, thing including Jacob Tremblay, who's, you know, lower on the screen, probably a little Asperger's, you know, in between Asperger's, maybe autism. And even I think the Olivia Munn character, you know, has sort of, everybody's on, and it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And yeah, and I I think that wasn't really (laughs) noted by a lot of people because they wanted to see like the effects and the predator, you know, lasering people in half and, and, and stuff. And, I, I think they missed the story more than they saw because, you know, like the effects and the action and all that was, eh, it was okay. I liked the story idea better with all these characters. I, I would have loved to see that movie and not see Predator until the end. Yeah. But what was interesting is, you know, that it was, it was the twist. You have the Predator, which ends up being, it's almost Terminator-esque because the original Predator now is your ally because he's there trying to protect you from the super Predator. <laughs> Which is a pretty cool idea. This is how they go. They've been, and now it's a bit like a genetic, you know, engineering type of thing. That that's what they go around and steal all these species. So they they've been, you know, genetically modifying their own species for you know hundreds of you know just making them like these super predators, which was kind of a crazy idea too. And the only people that could defeat them were just people that you thought were batshit crazy soldiers, but you know were actually there was a story behind every single one of them. And they all I thought everybody was actually good in the movie. And Thomas Jane was fantastic with Tourette's. I mean, it's just funny. 
And I, I think, I think this, I, you know, in my personal opinion, this is not, a, I'm not a rotten, you know, I'm not a tomato meter, you know, critic or anything, just a, a, a personal observation. I think at some point the studio was like, ah, oh, can we do that? Like, we can't, can we, can we focus and make fun of someone with Tourette's? And I was like, I don't think you're making fun of someone with Tourette's. I think you're celebrating this character that's giving a voice to these people that you don't normally see, except for usually in a bad light. And then, by the way, that's with the six other guys, too. You're showing something. It's like embrace that and then bring that into your – and I just think studios and marketing and execs and, and being – they just they just get really – they get really risk-adverse and they get really shy and like, oh, this is going to this is gonna work. This is going to work. And, um, a, you know, a studio yet again steps on another, you know, kind of Shane Black movie. <laughs> that's why nobody likes studios because they ruin everybody's stuff. I know like Star Wars is going through that sort of shame right now with the last Star Wars series. Uh, maybe some of the producers allegedly got a little bit too involved in, this, in the, the fan, but what we expected we didn't get because we didn't have really the right people driving that narrative. There was business for them. That's right. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't poo-poo Disney or as a studio or as a success story, a success story that, that Disney, the studio, I mean, they're gigantic. I mean, they're huge. They're the biggest studio out there, right? Maybe in my opinion, because I'm a, an original Star Wars fan, like I'm a, I'm an original three dork. Um, in so much the fact that I got invited to the Academy, uh, the, the DGA screening or the Academy screening back in '83 of when it was called Revenge of the Jedi. Oh, wow. So I went to the screening before it came out by like three months of Revenge of the Jedi, and uh, got a bunch of merch that said Revenge of the Jedi. And of course, didn't know they were going to change the title, and I played with everything and like threw it away years later. Uh, it's probably worth about seventy-four million dollars right now. I still have a little button that says "Revenge of the Jedi," which is cool from that night. But yeah, I, I maybe the worst studio to acquire Lucasfilm to carry on that because look, we, Disney's Disney. They do they are excellent at what they do, and they are and what they do is license stuff and sell it. And they go wide and they, they know exactly what they're doing. And they knew that we're making the Star Wars stuff and we actually don't really care about the original fans. It's the new kids that were trying to get in the parks and we're doing this and we want to sell this merch and we're licensing everything. And once they bought it, like there was, I mean, there was Chewbacca, you know, like tea coasters. And like now you can buy like, you know, an R2, a, a, a Chewbacca suit for your Chihuahua. And I mean, they just made it, they licensed everything because that's revenue and that's what they're really good at can't poo-poo them. I mean, it's Disney's Disney. Love Disney. Love going to Disneyland. It's amazing. You know, it's just as a, that original fan, you almost wish that someone else had acquired Lucasfilm to carry on uh, or even let George Lucas keep me. Well, I wouldn't even say that, no. But, you know, it misses a little bit because you can watch those movies and realize that, you know what, they're not making it for me. I get it. They're not, they, don't, they don't care about me. Uh, or they're not thinking of it. They may care about me. That's a little harsh, but uh, they're not making this for me. And all those movies did very well. So they're like, what are we doing wrong? We're not doing anything wrong. Look, look at our balance sheet. We know what we're doing. And all the fans are like, but we want, like, you know, we're the dorks. Like, we're the, I get fandom. Fandom sometimes takes ownership when it shouldn't. And you should let people make this stuff. Look, if you didn't like The Last Jedi, you, why are you want to, like, you know, tar and feather Ryan Johnson? Like, he made a, a cool movie, like a singular type of thing. If it just wasn't what you want, like, you don't own it. Like you did, then go write it and get hired to direct it. You know, quit being pissy about something you have no control over. 
if that's really the thing. You can voice your opinion because I voice my opinion. It's like, nah, I didn't think it was great, you know, or I like this part, but I, lo- I didn't like that part. I just thought they just went real safe. The Force Awakens. Uh, are we on Star Wars now? Like, we just went on like a Star Wars tale. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we're just, uh, uh, you know, uh, about everything. Yeah, and I, I, I hate to, I hate to nerd out or, or, or opinionate on Star Wars because, like I said, they make, uh, I don't know what they had to create a new word. It's not even a gazillion. You know, they've made gazillion dollars on Star Wars stuff. And I'm just, I'm such like a, I'm, I'm such a, I'm such a uh, like a like a gritty kind of you know down and simple one because that's what star wars was it was it was kind of a low budget sci-fi space opera that you know they had to put you know chapstick on the lens to you know cover the the wheels of the land speed i was like that's that's like gorilla like shitty filmmaking and it turned into this thing right and you know some of the effects the effects are still pretty good in the original original three but you're like why like you had such a chance with force awakens to just come up with a really cool story that all we wanted was to see was to see our heroes that's all we wanted in some way like it, the movie could have been them sitting it, you know it, it ta- it's a treasure hunt it takes them you know two and a half hours to all finally come into like the Moss Astley canteen or something that's all we wanted to see was everybody the same thing and then the movie ends and we would have loved it like nothing happens no lightsabers, no X-Wings. No, no, we, would, we would have loved that. We're like, oh, they're setting up what's going to happen. Like, we love this. But then we get this, we get this, it's like, it's the same movie. Yeah. It's yeah. the same movie. And they don't even get me on the science of that planet with the, the plasma. Come on. I mean, we're not even going there. And I'm not even a scientist, but I know that's bullshit. <laughs> um, and they should have made a whole other, you know, I, I rewrote it for them, but uh, I didn't. I didn't send it to them. But you know, because you can't poop them. They made a gazillion, bazillion dollars. <laughs> they know what they're doing. They have a whole world in in, in Disneyland. That people waited like six months in line to get into the sea. You know, and uh, it, it's a success. But uh, we'd like to see different movies. But I think the Mandalorian's doing that for some fans. I can't wait for the next season. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm hooked on to. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, next tangent. Sorry, we got way <laughs> off on some weird shit there. Sorry. Well, before I hand it over to Casey, he's going to read some fan questions. I do have a fan question of my own because I never got the answer to this. And, and I learned that there's two things that kill the Wolfman, but I never was able to learn what the second one was because you guys didn't agree on it. And I remember because we didn't have the internet, I remember going, shit, I just thought it was silver. I can't, I <laughs> assumed there was another. And yeah, I we guess, went on what we did like uh, uh, old age, uh, <laughs> falling out of a window, uh, which he actually does. Because that's kind of the thing, like, and it doesn't, and he gets blown up, and it doesn't kill him. I, I, I think legit in the literature, uh, anything silver you can kill a werewolf with. Uh, like, you can shoot him with a silver bullet, because that's easier and louder. Uh, I think you can stab him with a silver sword, or you can, you know, beat him with a silver cane or something. I, I think it's just silver. And I, I think that's werewolf literature kind of canon. Because I, a, a friend of mine, wrote an uh, awesome, fun book about werewolves. It's uh, I love it. it's called The Black Goat Motorcycle Club. It's a very cool story. So, you know, buy that book online and support Jason Murphy. It's a very cool thing. I actually want to make that movie. And I've been, I've been trying, I've been pitching that as a, either a, 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 like a premium event on a stream or like as, as a feature. Because it's a very cool story, Siege movie, and, but it's about werewolves. And it's great how they, you know, we end up, you know, beating the werewolves in, the, in that story. Uh, but it has to do with silver. And so I think you can beat him with a silver cane. You can shoot him with a silver arrow. I think we, we should have shot him with a silver arrow. That would have been rad, right? Uh, ooh, maybe we'll do that in the sequel. 
not, not announcing that there's a sequel or anything. Sorry, don't go crazy. That's not what just happened. Uh, but yeah, I think it's anything silver, and that's it. Yeah, it's out there now. There's going to be a sequel. Nope, nope. <laughs> Casey, shut it. <laughs> yes, yeah, Silver Arrows, Monster Squad, Monster Squad Two. Uh, I, I'll do it. It's fine if the story's right. Everybody's asked about a sequel. You know, they tried to remake Monster Squad a couple of times for a number of years. They were trying to reboot it. Rob Cohen, who was actually a, an original producer in 87, uh, you know, then, you know, went on to become, you know, a giant studio guy and big director of huge movies. Uh, he and uh, uh, Michael Bay's company were actually working on rebooting Monster Squad. And uh, it took years. And then um, Universal ended up announcing the Dark Universe. And so Platinum Dunes, I believe, just, you know, announced that, like, well, if... Universal's doing their run and then marveling them and, you know, doing a Marvel thing and mashing them up, then um, we're, we, there's no reason for us to remake the Monster Squad. Well, if that died, which I think it did, yeah. maybe that does open the doors again for you. Well, the, well, everybody kind of enjoyed that they weren't doing that, I think, like the original fans. Uh, and then the Dark Universe died because they didn't do it right. What they should have actually done was opposite. They should have done them all together as an intro movie and then broke off and done one-offs instead of the other way around. Because most people, I don't think, realize that Dracula Untold, I think, was supposed to be the first Dark Universe movie. Then they're like, oh, shit, we didn't do it. We got to put Tom Cruise in the next one. We have to put Tom <laughs> Cruise in the next one. And um, and then The Mummy happened. <laughs> that was cool, but, like, that Tom Cruise character, did you need to be, like, you could have plucked that character out in the movie, it would have been fine. Right. <laughs> uh, and I'm a Tom Cruise fan. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. Ever since Taps, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Tom Cruise fan. He's great. Just watched Ricky B- Risky Business the other day. Still good. And I'm so mad at COVID that we're like a, this Top Gun Maverick, like delay. I'm like, you took, come on. You're taking Top Gun sequel away from me. I'm, let's go. Wear your masks, damn it. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. So that, that reboot and, 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 and sequels, it'll be fun. I think um, I was I was kid, you know, with fans and, and talking with people. There's a really, really cool, a sequel story written uh, on someone's laptop, and um, I'm touching that laptop right now. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I think if you're going to make a thing, a la like we're talking about Star Wars, here's kind of a it kind of full circle. But uh, if you made a sequel with something that is beloved and and lo- with a loyal fan base, I think you make it, and you can do it today. Big studios won't do it, and you couldn't do it 20 years ago. But if you're making a sequel, you have to do it to that core group. That should be your focus. If you catch extra, great. But the studio mentality is what's our widest audience? What's our screenplay have to be? Who do we have to have in it? And what does it have to, you know, current events or, you know, kind of politicky be for to get our widest audience possible? We don't want to piss these people off. We don't piss these people off. Uh, we don't really care about the core audience because they're going to come anyway. They're fish in a barrel, right? Uh, we don't care if they don't like it. We already got their ticket. Um, and if you focus on that core audience and make a sequel, no matter what it is, th- then you're, then you're smart. And I think you can do that today because there's a lot of different outlets to, to show your content on, you know, as we've seen the last, you know, eight months, like that big theater release, is that coming back? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, everybody's like, Ooh, it's much cheaper to not do that. And we can still make more money on VOD or on, you know, now on PVOD and all this other stuff where we can charge, you know, a ton of money for our big studio movie and we don't have to put it in our appetite. We don't have to really do as much. I hope that doesn't happen, but I think the effects of uh, COVID are going to, are going to bruise that a little bit. 
But I think if you're ever making a sequel, if you're writing a sequel, if you're producing a sequel, concentrate on the core audience first and then go, you know, then expand out. Don't do it the other way around because you piss off and, and, and you kind of disenfranchise your loyal fan base, which is never smart. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, next next question. I know we had stuff rambling so, again. You actually uh, you actually answered our first fan question from uh, Elmer, uh, and I apologize to these people. I, I'm terrible with people's names. Elmer Boster. Uh, his his the first question was uh, if they did make a remake, would you want to be involved with it? And it looks like you you would be, and you not only would be, but you have one written. <laughs> <laughs> I just wrote, I just wrote a cool kind of outline what I think would service. Uh, one, what we did in the first one and would service the fans, but, you know, and, and carry on the story. Cause it's definitely got to be a passing of the torch type thing in my sure. book. Right. The answer to Elmer's question is uh, yes. If the right people are doing it, uh, you know, it kind of depends, you know, it's tough to say that as an actor, it's like, Oh, someone's offering a role or how are you not going to do that? I was like, it depends on who was, offering us or me that and what the script was and what the story was and what it was doing, you know, it'd be very tough if it, if it wasn't good or it was kind of schmarmy or campy or, or lame or completely not even a sequel or not even a, you know, a, a reboot or something. Uh, it'd be, if it was really, really bad or in bad and poor taste, it'd be hard to be, uh, cause I'm more loyal to the fan base cause I know them so well over the last, you know, you know, 12, 13 years than I would be to whatever producers asking me to do it. It'd be, I, I find myself like experimenting with this conflicted conversation. That's probably never going to happen. But uh, yeah, if, if the right people, I mean, if Fred and Shane are involved, probably no brainer. Absolutely. You know, if some really cool director, that's like a huge fan, you know, that, that wanted to, you know, make it or, you know, Ryan Gosling was producing it or something, then absolutely. Cause he's a huge fan. He's, he's a big monster squad fan. That's nice. So before we get into the rest of the fan questions, uh, Bill had mentioned earlier about the release of Monster Squad. So it was only released on VHS like in 1989, right? Something like that. Yeah, summer of 88, beginning of 89, something like yeah. that. And then it wasn't seen again. Like it was never put out again after that, right? Not in a kind of sanctioned release. You know, the it, it was in theaters, I think the longest run for three weekends somewhere, maybe uh, probably two and mostly one <laughs> everywhere else. Uh, then he waited a year and I think it ended up on HBO in 88. And then your local video store got it on VHS where it just started to really catch hold. But then, yeah, until then, until it, it may have shown a little bit more on cable, you know, on cable over a couple of years. I think there was a, a rare kind of like cable TV run of it, like once or twice in the mid nineties and it was cut. And of course it was, you know, it was pan and scan and, you know, bad aspect ratio and all that, which is what the VHS is. And most people have the VHS, whether they ripped it off of, uh, uh, not ripped it off, but, you know, ripped it, you know, recorded on HBO or kept the, or bought the, or stole it from the video store in VHS. That's always that compressed, you know, TV aspect ratio where you miss a lot of image in this movie. And so when the Alamo draft house in Austin did that first cast reunion screening in 06, that was the first time a lot of people and the first time in 20 years, anybody had seen it in widescreen and on 35 and cause they had tracked down a print of it and showed it in, in the theater. And that really kind of launched this whole thing. It's crazy. But you know what happened after that event? Right. Yeah. That's what I was getting at. So 
after that, was there like an outpouring of letters or who, how did that, it, it was made into a, a DVD then after that, right? That was really, uh, I honestly think, I mean, no doubt that that double screening on a Saturday night before Easter, you know, where there was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people there and stayed all night and had a Q and A and autographs. Uh, and, and we had the internet, you know, finally, you know, something that was attached to my had internet and everybody could connect and realize what was going on. And Fred said something, you know, super interesting that got picked up by bloggers and, and reviewers at that event. He said, look, because someone asked, like, where's the DVD? Like, I'm just never been on DVD. And I think Ashley was like, well, you don't make DVDs on bombs. <laughs> you, know? you just don't do that. You do now because people just put out a DVD on, on everything, which is smart. But back then that didn't happen. And Fred was like, look, I think if you want a DVD or if you want a new, you know, kind of version of this, uh, it's not up to me. I don't own it. You know, whoever the studio owns it now, it's like, send a letter, like write emails, um, post blogs, uh, literally, you know, mail a brick to them, you know, they're like, you know, give them something. And I'll be damned if the fans didn't do exactly that. And, you know, awesome people like, uh, like Sean Robert, um, Sean Robert, you know, wrote like 65 letters and got creative with him and made it like he was, you know, Eugene sending stuff to the, you know, the studio. And, you know, I don't know if it was Sean individually or all the other thousands of people that ended up writing the studio, which ended up being Lionsgate at the time. And the next subsequent year, you know, we started doing appearances and other screenings and they were like, wait, we own this. Like, we, I think there's a thing there. We should put this out. And like a year later, we were at a convention and there's this guy there uh, who we all know now. Like, I didn't know who this guy was, Michael Felsher, uh, and uh, used to work at Anchor. And, and he's like, hey, I'm here. We're doing the, um, we're going to put you on camera. We're doing the special features for the Monster Squad DVD for Lionsgate. And we were at a convention. Like, I think we were at Monster Mania in New Jersey. And um, right across the bridge from you guys, you know, right outside of Philadelphia. And in Cherry Hill. And um, we're like, who are you? And what do you do? There's no DVD. Like, nothing's happening. What are you talking about? He's like, no, no, no. Lionsgate's putting out a, a big 20th anniversary DVD. I've got to work. I'm getting your on-camera interviews, like, tomorrow night in your hotel room. I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> I was like, I don't. What is happening? I think if they were doing something, someone may have called us and said, this is what's happening. Like, I don't know who you are. And we were all like, what is happening? And I ended up having to call a friend uh, that uh, it was in LA and he was, you know, he was an uh, agent at the time. I was like, can you call Lionsgate and find out if this is legit? He's like, yeah, actually this is. I don't know why someone didn't call anybody. <laughs> and, uh, but it, I almost wish I, I was very caught off guard and we were like, wait, we're going on camera. Like, and I looked terrible. I was like, I'm going to go stand out in the sun for a minute or two or like get a haircut and what's happening. And I looked terrible. And I was like, I was like, Oh, I looked terrible in that DVD, uh, but Lionsgate put that out and hammered it. Like they, they didn't even realize how, what they had. And they sold out of the first run very quickly. They made a second run, sold out very quickly. And they had to go to third press of their something and just sold it. And then they were out. And then like, then the movie was out of print again. It's crazy. Fans waited 20 years to get their DVD. And then it was out of print again. It was a collector's item yet again, like three weeks after it released. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, that's a great story. I was reading about that uh, the other day. And I actually only saw Monster Squad the other day for the first time. It somehow for the first time, okay. It somehow missed my uh, radar when I was a kid. It, like I said, it it missed it missed a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so another uh, fan question here from Jake Godbold. 
ask Andre if he can still walk a tightrope like he did in Circus of the Stars. Uh, great question. I, I'm sure I – yeah, my balance is still pretty good. You know, walking on a wire is uh, is uh, not the easiest thing to do, but I think it's, it's sort of like riding a bike, you know. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably 40 pounds heavier, you know, just as I was when I was 14, but, uh, yeah, at least. It, it, but you know, it's, a, it's a unique skill, and that's awesome that you mentioned. You know, I was very fortunate enough to do this giant show, you know, back in the – you know, start in the 70s and went through the 80s called Circus of the Stars, and it was, a, you know, a big kind of Christmas special where uh, celebrities and, you know, people on TV show and movies um, – you know, got asked to try out an audition and you were in the circus. And uh, I think a lot of people thought it was, you know, kind of campy or corny, but when you're involved in like one of the, the, the bigger acts on that show, like you, you do a lot of work for that. I mean, it is every day for three or four months and you get bruised and break bones and get scraped up and, you know, you, you get banged up, you know, working on you know something like a circus act. It is, it is not comfortable. And, um, I, I did it twice. I got to do that show twice, actually. The second time I did the, the low wire act, which is, uh, everybody knows the high wire, which is, you know, you know, classic, you know, uh, circus act and a high wire is about 20 feet high and the wire is, is, is taut. And, uh, the low wire is an act where the, the, the wire is about eight or 10 feet and it has a spring on one. end, so it moves and sways and bounces and goes all over the place. So I got to do that as a solo act the second time. And, uh, it, just a great experience. I mean, one of the highlights of, I mean, not only kind of like my existence, but, you know, especially my professional, you know, life as a kid of uh, things that you get to do. Like I got to do a lot of cool stuff and, and being in the circus is uh, more than once was, uh, is one of those. And once you're kind of in that world, like you get to go back into it all the time. Like you can just show up and jump on the trampoline or go up on the trapeze and, and do it. Cause it's, it used to all be at one, one individual's house in, in LA who had a whole backyard, which was basically a circus. And he was a famous stuntman that uh, named Bob Yerkes, who's been in just about every movie ever. And he's actually in Monster Squad, ironically. But you know, old famous stunt guy, uh, you know, circus, you know, circus kid himself. And uh, his he was like one of the head trainers. But they brought people from all over the world, like all the circuses all over the world, to train the you know the celebrities that were learning their acts. It was very cool. Nice. Is that? Can you find that show anywhere? Is it on YouTube? Yeah, or? you can. You can find most of the episodes of Surface Stars on YouTube, I believe. Yeah. Cool. Or in my mom's garage on VHS. <laughs> yeah, young people forget. I mean, never knew how big the circus was to us in the '80s. The circus was a massive thing when that came to town, and that Circus of the Stars was a massive show when that would come on. It wasn't a series; it was a special. They would have a ton of specials. It was an annual special. I think you know, like sometime during December, they would air it. But uh, you know, you would start in the summer. And then I think you would you would tape the show in October and November, and then they would cut it together for a month, and then would air. I think it was CBS. It was a huge you know Sunday night you know special presentation thing every year. And I think that show went on for like a decade or more. It's crazy. I ended up having a bunch. The time I did it the first time, I was ten, and I was the youngest person to ever do the show. Uh, and then a few years later, Amy Foster, who was on uh, Punky Brewster, uh, uh, did it. She was like six months younger than I was. Like she took my title, but. Uh, uh, it's okay because I, that was, uh, it was Amy Foster, Ernie Reyes Jr. And I, th- I think it was Scott Grimes did flying trapeze and probably the best flying trapeze act that had been on that, that, that on that show ever. They, they, they hammered that trapeze act it was awesome. And we're all, ki- I mean, they're all kids. Yeah. And, uh, they were, they were really good on that trapeze act. Very cool. 
All right, so we just have a couple more uh, fan questions here for you, and this is uh, the controversial one that Bill had mentioned that before our chat. So if you don't want to answer it, you know, just say pass, and we'll we'll finish up. Michael Joseph says this question question might go unanswered, but I wanted to know whatever happened to Robbie Kiger. I remember an old IMDb message board that he was accused of uh, drug use. And I noticed that the four screenings of the movie that I was at, no one has ever mentioned his name whatsoever, not even on any of the DVD commentary. Uh, and he hasn't worked since 1990, but I find the complete lack of mention strange. I think there's two, there's two answers uh, for, um, was it Michael? Asking yeah. For Michael's question. The older stuff, like, during DVD commentary or early screenings or whatever, and people would ask about Robbie, we just had no idea. Like, we didn't know where he was. We hadn't seen him in years. So we just had no idea. That's We just had no answers. Um, a, a few years, you know, after that and things got rolling, I think we learned that Robbie had uh, – I think he lived in Hawaii for a, a, a long amount of time. Um, ironically, I think my mom, who lives in Las Vegas, ran into Robbie's mom. Uh, it just randomly, you know, in town because I think she lived here for a while, so they connected a little bit. I don't know about. I've heard story. I haven't seen. I haven't seen Robbie in thirty, probably twenty five, thirty years. So I don't really know. It's not. It's not my story to tell. I, I think. I think people would love to see him and, and talk to him. We just didn't have any outreach or connection to him. I know I had uh, reached out a little bit during making the documentary to see if where he was or if I can get in touch with him because I knew one kind of convention booker that had had been in contact with him. Uh, I just you know just didn't just, just we never connected. Uh, so the the answer to the early thing is when no one mentions like no one knew, like we just didn't know where he was or how he was or if he's still around or even apparently you know he was living I think in Hawaii for a number of years, which is kind of rad. I don't know. Like I said, I haven't seen him. I don't know the stories. Um, and I, I, I haven't been able to talk to him, but see, I grew up with Robbie, like Robbie and I are from LA. We grew up acting and we, and we would probably see each other just about every other day for most of our youth and adolescence life auditioning for the same stuff or being in the same shows. Uh, and that's why, you know, it was cool to, to you know, do Monster Squad with Robbie because I'd known him. I didn't know anybody else in the movie, uh, except for Robbie. And uh, so that was neat because we grew up together because back in the day, you know, even though there was a lot of kids in the business, you know, there, there's not that many, you know, there's, and then the, there was a smaller amount that actually got to do a majority of the work. And, you know, Robbie was on a bunch of TV as a kid, uh, did some, and like he's in Children of the Corn, you know, which is, you know, which is a, which is a great horror title, you know, very classic. Uh, I just hadn't seen him. And I don't think anybody else had known. There was no connection. There was no like outreach either way. Like, Hey, I want to go to these things. We just, it wasn't there. Uh, and I think it's unfortunate because I think everybody would love to see Robbie or, you know, or, or we would love to see him, you know, um, you know, Robbie and the fans like to see, you know, who played Patrick and, 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 and be kind of cool like that. It just didn't, it just didn't materialize. I think, you know, a lot of most of the story that, you know, is unfortunate with that time is everybody wants to see Horace, but Brent Chalen passed away in 1987. And, uh, you know, even before all of this kind of resurgence and this kind of, you know, explosion of monster squad fandom in the, in the mid two thousands, everybody wants, I mean, look, Rudy's the cool kid. We all know that. But everybody's favorite character is Horace, and uh, he's he's the he's 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 the awesome character in this movie. That you know, Ashley always said it. She said it on camera. It's great. It's like he has the best character arc in this movie of anybody, and you know he shows up and 
everybody related to Horace. Uh, you know, I talked to thousands of fans to say the same thing. They're like, look, I really, you know, we all wanted to be Rudy, but I was really a Horace. Because <laughs> I, I was just, you know, I was the I was the one that was got picked on. I was a little overweight as a kid in junior high. And I was like, okay. He's like, but Horace is my man. Like, Horace is my guy. I'm like, it's a great character. And Brent was awesome. Uh, and it's unfortunate that he, you know, unfortunately passed away and, you know, wasn't able to see kind of the appreciation and really kind of like that deep connection that a lot of people have with those characters. And, you know, I, you know, I think Robbie, you know, it's the same thing. You know, everybody wants to see once they started seeing the squad out there. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, I don't know if they got tired of seeing me and Ryan and Ashley, you know, at different places, because we didn't really kind of saturate the market or, or convention thing. I think we handled it pretty good. Um, and fans are still appreciative, you know, if we're somewhere. So I, I, I think that works. But yeah, we'd love to see Robbie out there. Love to see Brent. Of course, that's impossible. And that really, really sucks. Uh, and the story of him passing is actually more tragic than most people think. And we actually cover that a little bit in, in the documentary. We get the true story of what actually happened. Uh, and it's awful. It's just tragic and, you know, shouldn't have happened. Could have been prevented, probably. It's just one of those things you're like, that sucks. Not only because he passed away, nothing selfish, like he needs to be around, but the, he would have loved to be a part of all this. And I think the fans would have just, I mean, it's, it's insane. They would have glommed on to, you know, see Brent today. That'd be amazing. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Like, Horace, like, oh my gosh, that's my guy, Horace. <laughs> uh, but it's the same thing. Like, a lot of people ask where, uh, where Michael Faustino is. Uh, Michael, who played Eugene, great kid, younger brother of David Faustino, who he and I are the same age and we grew up together. So I've known Michael m- most of my life. And uh, he got out of acting when he was still pretty young. Uh, and, you know, went to school and went off and now he's a, um, he still works in the industry, but he's a, uh, he's an audio engineer. He's a sound, he's a sound guy and works on huge, you know, huge shows uh, like The Voice and American Idol. So he does big productions. He does you know sound for big productions. So everybody thinks like, oh, well, if I don't see these people anymore as celebrities or actors or whatever, like then like, you know, they faded out or wiped out. I was like, really? Maybe they're off doing like real people stuff or like, right. you know, even better jobs than, you know, talking a product on, you know, on, on Saturday morning or something. But uh, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, I've done a ton of stuff other than acting and, you know, now, you know, developing, producing and directing and, you know, you always act. That's the easy part. Honestly, folks, that's, the, that's it's the fun part and the easy part, you know, doing real people stuff and going to college and, and getting jobs and, you know, starting families and doing that's, that's work. And uh, a lot of people don't think actors and stuff actually do that shit. They don't think they do that. I'm like, why not? People think I was crazy when I, uh, you know, through high school and I graduated high school and I wanted to go to college. And not only did I want to go to college, I, I was a basketball player. I was an athlete. I always wanted to play sports and basketball was my, was my thing. And I'm the short white guy. And uh, not a lot of opportunity out there, you know, in the, in the early nineties. Uh, but I wanted to go to college and play basketball. And so we, you know, I, I found an opportunity situation and I left LA. I left Hollywood. I left the entertainment industry and I went to a, uh, a school in North Carolina to play college basketball. People thought it was insane. I was like, how do you give up a career? I was like, look, I can always go. I can read for a sitcom when I'm 30. I can audition for something when I'm 30. I can't play college basketball when I'm 30. This is an opportunity I'm not going to pass up. So I think people kind of lose, sometimes lose sight of that, you know, especially back in the day, but it's uh, I could have stayed in the industry and never worked again. 
uh, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a TV show. <laughs> there's zero guarantee. And, but if I had missed going to college and learning the stuff I learned or meeting the friends that I met or, you know, uh, not playing basketball. I, I, I got to play basketball in two different colleges. I played division one basketball, you know, my junior and senior year, which is insane and uh, loved every minute of it. Wouldn't trade it for whatever television show you say you're going to give me. Nice. Again, well, Rob, sorry, tangent on that. I started uh, with Robbie and went to break with all that, but uh, I think there's, you know, there's a cool story there. So absolutely. hopefully that's Michael's question. Yeah, absolutely. And Robbie, if you're out there, man, uh, reach out. People want to hear from you. <laughs> absolutely. So, uh, all right, this is the last question, and it's a thing that you've mentioned quite a few times uh, during this uh, interview. Shane Picos, and I think everyone else that's a fan of Monster Squad wants to know, when is the release date for the documentary Wolfman's Got Nards? Well, Shane, thank you, uh, and everybody else that's thinking the same thing. Uh, Wolfman's Got Nards officially releases in North America on VOD on October 27th. So check iTunes uh, for pre-orders. You can check Amazon uh, for, uh, there, it's VOD, obviously. You can rent or uh, digitally download the movie. Uh, there's also physical media. If you're a collector and want to, want to actually like hold, the, hold the disc in the case in your hand, you can order that. Uh, just go search around. I, I think uh, iTunes pre-orders uh, available at the time of this airing. If it's not, it will be. <laughs> just keep looking. And then on the 27th, whatever your kind of VOD platform of preference is, whether it's Amazon or iTunes or, you know, Comcast or Dish Network or, you know, th there's a ton. I have, a, you know, there's a whole list uh, that we got uh, just recently of, of what outlets picked it up. And then hopefully after that, it'll be streaming and then, um, you know, on, on cable and all this. So hopefully there'll be a long run for this documentary because uh, it's not just Monster Squad based. It's really about the connection that, that kids and fans have with film and cinema and how that can impact their lives and all told through the lens of Monster Squad fans. And, and, and it turned out so much better than even kind of my kind of longer view, wildest dreams. And, you know, that has a lot to do with, you know, being fortunate enough to, I had original, a different concept, you know, when I was thinking about making a documentary just for the fans and Ryan and I were going to run around at conventions with a, you know, a shitty camera or something and, and just talk to some fans and, and do it on our podcast website for like a buck or something. And lo and behold, I got very fortunate enough to run into a couple guys at Pilgrim Media Group, which is division Lionsgate and, ended up working with this production team there, pitching it to the executives. They saw the value in working on this because they wanted to develop some in-house stuff. And I got an awesome team with uh, my guy, Henry McComas and uh, Wes Caldwell and Shane Patterson and Aaron Kunkel, you know, these, these guys that made the movie with me. It's very, it's a very small group. And we spent just under a year making an entire documentary. We, got it done and it was amazing and that's all the work from those production guys and uh you know me tagging along and again being the insufferable know-it-all telling people what to do and uh what needs to happen and, and scheduling stuff and it was just a whirlwind of like 10 or 11 months and we premiered our first festival and it just you know went gangbusters from there and uh, had a great festival run the, the doc went all over the planet and uh, won some awards here and there which is awesome and then uh, kind of went dormant a little bit, almost a la Monster Squad for a little bit. It's almost like a mini, mini recycle. And, uh, but look, we, we ended up with a great uh, uh, distribution partner, especially during these certain times where, you know, there's no theaters, no big stuff going on uh, with Gravitas Ventures. 
uh, and they're a great VOD distributor and uh, they're doing everything. So I, I you know, I, eventually I think we'll have some, you know, drive-in theater viewings. You can order the Blu-ray. Uh, you can digitally download it on October 27th and, uh, and go from there. So, you know, we don't know what we're doing for Halloween this year. Maybe it's, you know, it's perfect. Maybe it's great timing, you know, cuddle up with whatever and your, your candy corn and whatever costume you're not going to go trick-or-treating in and, and watch a documentary and then follow it up, you know, watching uh, Monster Squad on Amazon or something. <laughs> well, I hope, and I hope, I hope more than one, you know, more than, more than a few people that saw Monster Squad in theater actually end up seeing the documentary because we need it to work out good. So if you like it, you know, either buy it, rent it twice, tell a friend, do something. That's my shameless plug. So it's, uh, you know, because we want to keep it, we want to keep it churning on the VOD and keep it out there longer, uh, as long as possible. We'll help promote it, but we're definitely going to see it. I mean, that sounds amazing. That sounds like the greatest. I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Awesome. And then, uh, yeah, talk about it. You know, it's, uh, like I said, it's not really, uh, you know, a lot of people, we've seen a lot of these nostalgic docs, you know, in the last, you know, five or six or seven years, and a lot of fan docs, a lot of things. Uh, this is certainly not one of those. It really isn't. I usually explain it being that it's not a where are they now doc. It's not a making of doc. And it's certainly not a straight in your face fan service. Here's the stuff. All these fans just want to see and, and goob out for a little bit and get giddy. We do a little of We do that. But really what it was, it's, it's not about us. It's not about the original movie. I wanted to, to tell the story. I wanted to turn the, the focus around on the fans of not only that fans are, 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 are our fans are awesome and, and loyal, but why this movie really impacted this group of people so deeply because I spent 10 years at conventions and appearances, you know, meeting these awesome fans. But over time I kept hearing very similar stories and experiences of what this movie meant to me as a kid, or now I show it to my kid or my dad took me to this at the drive-in and then I built a tree house in my backyard and we were you. And like I had a group of friends, we made our own squad. And I was like, you keep hearing that more and more over the years after something you thought no one ever saw. And it makes an impact on you personally, but I didn't want, I, you know, you could have very easily made a movie, a, a documentary about how that impacted me or Ryan or Ashley or whatever. I mean, that was, that was really the main point is like, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's about these fans. So I wanted to turn the focus around and celebrate the fans because they're really the only reason why this movie's still being talked about 30 something years later. There, there's no other reason. Like we're, we didn't bring it up. We don't want to bring it up as a bond. Like what, what we hash that out, you know, bring it up. Like, uh, but these fans were that loyal fan base that kept it. Like they, they got tethered to it whenever they saw it and they have not let go and they will not let go. And I wanted to tell that story. And then we wanted to broaden that of, you know, just, you know, kind of transcend monster squad a little bit and go into why either movies or, or cinema or art or, you know, literature or a book or a TV, you know, how, what, you know, how did that impacts people a little bit? So we, we broaden the scope a little bit and, 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 and make it very interesting and got some great stories and traveled all over the place. And uh, people, people seem to like it. So, you know, rent it, have a viewing party with your family or, you know, if you're a monster squad fan, uh, I, I, I think you'll like it. Um, it does a little of that, you know, fan service stuff and, you know, you get to see us, you know, current out of shape and, and, and old. Um, but you know, you still relate, you still relate to those great characters and, and the fans that really not only haven't changed in 30 years, they've just gotten stronger. And, uh, it, it, it's an, it, it's an insane story when you look at it from, 
that perspective. Like I'm inside of that. Like I'm really like, I've, I've seen these fans for the last 10 or 12 years and got to know a lot of them and kind of understood that dynamic. And that's what, you know, I wanted to really tell that, tell that story. It was fascinating. Some of these stories are amazing. Like some of these people are what they are today because of this movie. And I was like, that, that's a story. Like that story has got to be told. It's not about us. It's not about the movie failing or being, it's like these people, like, who were these kids that, you know, either stole the video or, you know, got the Japanese laser disc and, you know, like dubbed it and gave it to their friends or, you know, an older brother gave it to the younger brother and passed around, just became this thing. And people just got connected with it. Unlike anything I've really ever seen with any other, you know, kind of movie. And look, I go, I go to a handful of like horror conventions or pop culture conventions or, uh, you know, and there's awesome people, great fans. You know, you've got, Back to the Future, you've got X-Files, you've got, you know, you know, Jason Voorhees, you got all this amazing stuff with awesome fans. There's nothing like Monster Squad fans out there. And I've, I've diligently compared and contrasted and, and kind of tried to analyze it from a from kind of like a strategic education. <laughs> There's nothing like Monster Squad fans out there. They are, they are awesome. They are, uh, they are connected, they are loyal, and they just keep passing on. They're, they're the reason, like you and they're the reason we're talking right now is because right. this family, you know, there's no other reason. Uh, it's just because they've kept it alive and they wouldn't let it die. And they will fight you in the parking lot. <laughs> they would be like, you're going to, don't, don't, don't talk bad about my, my jam, which is Monster Squad. And I will, I will step up and Horace you right now. <laughs> like I will, I will, my name is Horace you right here in the parking lot of, of the, of the mall. Um, Horace you. <laughs> I will Horace you right now. Because uh, really, I mean, if you re- like, what are you going to do? You're going to Rudy somebody that's cool and like give them a side eye, and you can't Sean anybody because they're just gonna, you're just going to like like bossing them around. That's not really what that is. Like, I boss you around. You need to go over and do that. Uh, Horace, like I said, he's the badass. He's the one that really comes up and and makes a difference. And I think that's why he connected. And that's really one of the kind of experiments with the doc was was you know also learning and for myself and the people that were involved and, and the other cast members was, you know, let, you know, let's learn, we can learn a little bit, like really figure out what that is. And it's fascinating that, you know, these kids or whenever they saw it really connected with one or more of these characters and they became them. And they said, this is me. I was, I was the horse of my group or I was the Patrick of my group. And I was like, I was the Phoebe of the group. My brother would never let me hang out with them. And then, you know, I'm like that, these are, so the movie just ended up becoming like so real to them and inspired them and influenced them in so many different ways than almost any other movie could. Yeah. What to say? I mean, this, I can't wait for this video for this movie. I want to see this. It's good. It's hard. You know, you, you know, I, I will, I will be honest with you. There's um there's a there's three or four points where everybody gets a little kind of uh, misty or, you know, kind of chokes up. But there's what's fascinating is, you know, like we, I've seen this with, you know, a couple dozen audiences over, you know, the festival run. And I like to stand in the back at certain points and see the reactions. And people come up and tell us after it's like this point really got me choked up because it reminded me of this or reminded me of, you know, my you know older brother and I when we watch this movie every Christmas or every Halloween. And uh, that part reminded me of my dad who died last year. And boy, you're like, you don't ex- like you don't make a movie with that in mind, you know, make a documentary trying to hit those things. And it's been fascinating just to even hear everybody's monster squad stories, but now they have Wolfman's gotten our stories to tell because of what that means to them that we got to make this and, and, and make it for them. And cause it's for them about them and they're in it. Like 
I'm in it way too much. And I try to cut myself out of even half, you know, half of what it was. I was like, Henry, get me out of here. Uh, Ryan's cool. Ashley's awesome. Leave them and get, get my ugly mug out of there. And uh, let you know, more fan stuff. Let's hit these stories. And, you know, I don't think you see a lot of, you know, docs that are fan docs or nostalgia that they show the people that made it. We do that too, but we see the fan, like it's about the fans and you are in it. Like this is your, this is your story. And I think everybody relate. They find friends. Like there's been people that are now friends because they saw it at a festival with each other and they bonded because they're like, wait, that was my story. And they're like, Oh wait, that's you. Oh, I'm, I'm that. And even if they're not in it, they connect with people. And I hope that's what happens after the release that, uh, you know, the internet's amazing. It, it, it's, it's so divisive. The internet is such a divisive tool but it balances out because it's also such a connective tool as well. And I think, you know, technology and being able to just pop in and talk with people or, you know, someone in in the UK can watch with someone in Albuquerque. They can watch this doc at the same time together and they can be, you know, messaging each other on the same. I mean, that that's cool. And I, and I, and I hope that's what happens and it brings the monster squad fandom, you know, that, that, that group together even tighter and shows them that, there's other people out there like you because everybody responded to the characters of Monster Squad because we were just a bunch of misfits that no one liked. And they were like, uh, that was me. Until I saw your movie, I was the outcast. But then I found another friend who liked it too and we've been best friends since seventh grade. And I'm like, those are, you don't, you don't get better stories than that. Hollywood can't write stories better than that. You can't even get the best writers from the 1940s to write a better story than that, right? And, uh, you know, and, and, and that's what the doc is really about, is telling those stories, uh, letting those people connect even on a, on, a, on a wider and deeper level and find each other. And I hope it just goes crazy that um, they get to connect and, and, and find more friendships through watching the doc or, you know, maybe it could be a bridge to other people or, or, or figuring stuffing out for them. So I think that's, uh, I hope, that's, that's the hope, you know, anyways. I can, I can only put it out there to the world and, and have everybody respond, but we've had a pretty good response, but I will warn you, you may or may not need a tissue here or there. Um, there's some, there's some stuff. And I, I don't know where that's going to affect you. There's a couple of pots that gets everybody, <laughs> but um, it, that was all organic and it wasn't, you know, it was, uh, it was just a, a, an organic happening of, of the story that ended up being told. And um you'll enjoy it. You can either sit, you can sit in the dark and watch it yourself. Uh, I love when people, you know, right now we can't go to you know, a theater full of people and, and sit in it, but it, it really is a, a group experience. If you have Monster fans, you watch it with your kids. Uh, that's really what it's about. I think I'll have to watch it by myself because I'm just getting teary eyed just listening to you talk about it. Yeah, it's, uh, and, and that's an interesting thing because you said you had just originally, you know, saw Monster Squad for the first time. So you're not going back as that kind of connected fan from, you know, a million years right. ago. Uh, you're coming into it new. So you'll get the service of the, of the connection with the film. But what's going to happen is what one of our main kind of focuses of as we were doing this, uh, and this is where, you know, Henry and, and, and Wes and all these guys, you know, just really helped out. The main point was like, you're going to, something's going to happen in this doc that's going to remind you of something else that has nothing to do with Monster Squad. And you, you're going to be like, this is where it just connected with me. Uh, it's going to be someone's story. It's going to be something that we say. It's going to be something that, you know, you see, you know, on the road in camera, or it's going to be some fan story at some, you're like, they, you're like, wait, I have that same thought for something else, but that it, it'd be interesting. So when you see it, you know, let, let's hang out again. We'll talk about it. And I want to, I want to hear uh, hopefully you like it, <laughs> but then, you know, I want to hear, you know, if, if something like that jumps out of you and, and then like connects. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I love Monster Squad. I watched it the I traveled for work and I watched it the other day on a plane and uh yeah, I, I loved it. You know, it's fun. It still, still kind of holds up. Some, you know, yeah, some absolutely. of the wardrobe, some of the jokes, you know, some of the, you know, we get a lot of stuff, you know, that that original script is, you know, totally politically incorrect now. And like, <laughs> totally, and like, look, uh, I, I, we've been lucky enough to not be canceled. But I, I think if you, if you get out ahead of it and you have that conversation with people that ask those questions, because they're, they're viable questions. Absolutely. Uh, this is also something that was made 30 years ago. Sure. And, um, you know, but we, we, we talk about that in the doc. We, we actually open up in a college class. The doc opens up in a college class with a room full of college kids that are, you know, oh my God, they look like they're nine years old, <laughs> but you know, they're all like sophomores and juniors in college. And, um, you know, I have a, he's, he's a great friend of mine. His name's Mike Dillon. He's a professor at Cal State Fullerton and uh, he teaches film studies at Cal State Fullerton, the film studies program. And he has a great line in the doc. He's like, you know, I teach film. Like, oh, great. And so, like, Casablanca and, like, you know, all these, he's like, mm, yeah, but um, do you know the Monster Squad? <laughs> and they're like, no, he's like, I show the Monster Squad every semester, uh, you know, for the same class. And I've been a guest in this class. And we got to video us in that class, and then it's in the dock, and then we got to take the dock back to the class. So it's just this amazing connection and coming full circle with a lot of these awesome people. But, you know, I, I love Mike Dillon and the Cal State Fullerton, you know, that, that that department for allowing us to come in there. And those students, they're awesome because there's a room full of kids who had never seen the Monster Squad. He shows it to them, and then they discuss how that movie affected them watching it, you know, from a new you know, late teenager, early 20s, you know, mentality in 2016, 17, 18, 19, compared to what you thought, you know, how movies were made, you know, literally in your parents' generation. So it's fun stuff like that. It's chock full. There's a lot in there. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a brisk uh, 80, I think it's 87 minutes now. We chopped three minutes off. Uh, but it, there's a lot jam-packed in there. We go all over the place. So it's, uh, it, but it's well done. Uh, my man, Henry McComas, uh, you know, saw the vision, put the heart into it. And we put a lot of, a lot of time, blood, sweat, and a little, some tears and, and a little bit of blood and, um, you know, a lot of road tripping and, and things like that. So it, just, it was just a great year of timing of cool things to go out. And there, there wasn't any other 10 or 12 months that we could have made this doc and got what we got into. So we got very fortunate and I hope everybody enjoys it. Nice. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. And I know you mentioned uh, it's uh, it's available for pre-order right now, correct? Uh, it should be, yeah. Uh, pre-order uh, either on Amazon for Blu-ray or uh, iTunes for digital download. Uh, so yeah, go go to that iTunes, you know, uh, find the link, uh, look on there, pre-order it. You'll be able to get it on the October 27th. Uh, that's, a, that's a great way to secure it. There may even be some stunt pricing you're going on. Maybe catch it at a good rate. So find it and, and try to get it. If not, you know, you can VOD it, you know, you know, if you, for your, for your PlayStation or, you know, Dish Network or, you know, Cox Cable or, you know, whatever your provider is, uh, hopefully it's on there for you. Great. And uh, real quick before we, we end, uh, all your plugs, where people can find you, website, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah, all of that stuff. Um, well, uh, on uh, I, I enjoy, you know, interacting with fans and seeing their stuff on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Andre Gower. On Instagram, it's at Andre Gower Official. Because um, apparently there's some other really cool dude with the name of Andre Gower out there. Um, and please follow the documentary. It's, uh, it's at the squad doc, uh, at the squad doc on Twitter and Instagram. And it's got 
it's its own website with info and links and 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 new information as it comes along. So that's at squad.com. Uh, yeah, please follow me, follow the doc, uh, you know, for more information uh, where you can get it. Please let us know if you've got your own kind of, I call them squad stories, uh, you know, your own kind of story that uh, affected you with this movie or after you've seen the doc, please, you know, send me a little video and post it on the squad doc dot com, uh, uh, squad doc um, socials or on mine and I'll repost it for you. I just, I love hearing those stories and I, and I think that's, you know, it's really going to, you know, make, you know, kind of this doc story get around is people connecting again with each other, either through social media or their internet or their neighborhood again. They get to walk across the street and go, have you seen this cool movie? Right. And uh, I can't wait for that to happen. So hopefully everybody goes out there and, and enjoys it and, and, and shares it with at least one friend. Nice. There's a uh, podcast idea for you, Squad Stories. Uh, you know, it is. And um, it, it, there's kind of a documentary about that too, so I was really thinking, but I was like, you know, how can I tell even more stories? And like, you know, Henry was like, we can't put any more stories in this doc. Like it's already full. I'm like, but there's so many more great ones. And that's what, you know, it's interesting when you make something like a documentary, uh, it, it changes fundamentally and completely, you know, a number of times as you're making it and as, you, as you're cutting it together. Uh, and so some of those fundamental elemental things that when you're writing the idea out on paper that you think you have to have and you get, and they're in there in stage one, but they're not in there at stage 10. And you're like, what happened with the thing with the, and it's like, it's out. It doesn't work anymore. This, this whole thing just com completely, you know, you know, it, it changes course. Making a documentary is an interesting process. Um, Cause you, you got to let it happen. And, and it, and it, and it forms its own self and you just got to be there kind of navigating what, what it's telling you to do. Nice. Well, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. It's, uh, documentaries Thanks. are one of my favorite types of uh, movies. So, like, I like the that that type of stuff. So, I'm really looking forward to it, man. And we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this for us. No, I had fun. Thanks for having me. And you know, anytime, hit me back up, or you know, anybody need anything on you know social, you know, hit me up. You know, hope everybody's doing well. Stay safe. Casey, Bill, thank you. I enjoyed it. I love talking about you know. Boy, we got off a good uh, Star Wars tangent. That's always fun. Because, you know, no one ever talks about Star Wars. We, next time we'll go, like, obscure. We'll pick, like, you know, obscure movies or people that don't know or, like, things like that. I've already done Starship Troopers for, like, three hours, so we don't we, – we can't do that again. And Showgirls is now getting, finally, like, all of its due. I'm like, really? Like, you didn't realize it was genius, like, in the theaters? Thanks. Um, <laughs> and I didn't have anything to do with it. Two genius movies that no one got until 20 years later. I was like, way ahead of you, way ahead of you, genius. Elizabeth Berkeley deserves a lot more credit than she got for that movie because it was all on purpose. No one realized it. But yeah, we'll talk about other movies. It's fun. I, I enjoy it. And as you can tell, I can ramble on uh, very well. Yeah, we can definitely do another show together. It sounds fun. This has been great. Awesome, guys. Appreciate great it. Great conversation. Uh, hit me up anytime and uh, hope, hope your listeners and, and your viewers enjoyed this. Uh, if you didn't, it's all Casey's fault. And um, uh, yeah, build a little bit, but uh, none of it's mine. Um, <laughs> no, I'll take all you guys are doing it all the time. They're like, that Andre Gower episode totally sucked. Um, would not be the first time, so it's not like you're breaking ground, but uh, no, this was great. There's man. other fun stuff out there that we can talk about, but uh, awesome. Hopefully, it's, yeah. you know, everybody loves the doc, they love Monster Squad. Please watch your show. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll promote it when I can and uh, and, and look forward to coming back. Great, Thank man. You. We appreciate it, man. All right, guys, appreciate it. Have a good right. day, man. Bye-bye.